this latest edition of the Sustainable Futures Show. I'm Anthony Day, and this podcast is brought to you as ever without subsidy, advertising or sponsorship. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing wherever you are. There are listeners in the US, in China, even in Côte d'Ivoire and certain parts of Bradford. Here are this week's headlines. The top story this week was going to be the announcement from DEC about changing subsidies for solar power, but that has been pushed off the front page by a major speech from Minister Amber Rudd. Are you ready for ESOS, the Energy Savings Opportunity Scheme? Get advice from the Carbon Trust. And advice from the Energist magazine on financing energy efficiency. Meanwhile, sustainable brands offer 46 tips for better sustainability storytelling. You remember that last time we talked about the Carbon Positive House just opened in Wales? This week we have the building industry urging the Chancellor not to scrap the zero carbon building standard. Quadrilla have confirmed that they will appeal against the rejection by Lancashire Council of their application for test fracking. No surprise there, and the case should be interesting. In Australia, if you can believe it, there are fears that renewable energy might run out. In her first major speech as Energy and Climate Change Secretary, Amber Rudd today set out the government's commitment to tackling climate change while keeping bills down in order to deliver lasting economic security for hard-working families and businesses. And hopefully for the rest of us. She said that the government's approach will help to protect the economy because failing to act would risk leading to lower growth, fewer jobs and higher prices. She added that this approach will see action taken in a way that keeps consumer bills down and encourages businesses to innovate, grow and create employment so it does not come at the expense of prosperity today. Speaking to business leaders at insurance company Aviva headquarters in London, She said that the global agreement to be finalised in Paris in December must work for business so that the private sector can play its full part in shaping the solutions to climate change through innovation, technology, enterprise and competition. That's the press release. This is what I took from reading the full text of the speech. The Minister said some very good things, and she said some things that will be met with wry smiles. She reminded us of the Stern report, which estimated that climate change could mean losing at least 5% of global GDP, and, left unchecked, that loss could rise substantially. She mentioned the climate change risk assessment published last week by the University of Cambridge, which concluded that, if anything, we have tended to underestimate the economic risk. She mentioned the Economist Intelligence Unit report, highlighting the significant financial losses that could be faced, and she told us that the Bank of England has been taking climate change very seriously indeed. She quoted Margaret Thatcher at the World Climate Conference in 1990, when she said the danger of global warming is real enough for us to make changes and sacrifices, so that we do not live 
at the expense of future generations. Turning to policy, the Minister spoke of focusing on storage and reducing energy demand, not just generating more energy. She spoke of focusing on energy efficiency. Good, let's see some initiatives. We want a strong, ambitious, rules-based agreement that makes the shift to a clean global economy irreversible. And then she said, the best way to deliver on this is through the way we know the economics will work best, using the markets, using free enterprise and competition to drive down the costs of climate action. That's where I and others part company with her. Now the markets have a short-term focus. Indeed, they have a short-term obligation to their shareholders. Renewable energy and decarbonisation are long-term projects. That's why the government has had to intervene with subsidies. She effectively admitted that the cuts to wind and solar are planned because the subsidies are becoming unaffordable. But then she said, We still need renewable energy to continue growing, and I understand that the industry needs certainty so that they can, can continue to invest in the UK, supporting jobs and growth. Yes, but cutting subsidies at short notice destroys the certainty, which is precisely what industry needs. She goes on to talk about subsidies to fossil fuels. As the Prime Minister told the UN last September, these fossil fuel subsidies are economically and environmentally perverse. The IEA have estimated that globally they run to almost $550 billion a year. You may have heard about that in an earlier Sustainable Futures show. The UK does not subsidise fossil fuel consumption, and we are working with the G20 and others to bring them down. That's not strictly true. The IEA calculated its figure of $550 billion a year by including the costs of pollution, including bad air quality and resulting health care costs, which the fossil fuel companies do not have to pay for. By that definition, the UK does subsidise fossil fuels. Turning to COP21, the International Climate Conference in Paris in December, the Minister identified three key objectives. First, a deal that must keep the global two degrees goal within reach. Second, the deal must include a set of legally binding rules that give us confidence that countries will deliver on their commitments. Third, an agreed process of regular five-yearly reviews where we can increase our global ambition. I'll support that. I hope Russia, China, Japan, India, the US and all the other high-polluting countries will do so as well. The Minister closed saying we need business to demonstrate that action to tackle climate change isn't an indulgence. It makes cold, hard economic sense. I'll support that too. Staying with DEC, the Department of Energy and Climate Change, in the last episode I brought you a report which suggested that the department was running out of money to subsidise renewables. This week's press release confirms as much. It starts off by saying reducing energy bills for hard-working British families and businesses and meeting climate goals in the most cost-effective way are government priorities. Popular headlines claimed that DEC was going to cut subsidies to solar power. Of course they may do so, but in fact at this stage they have only announced a consultation. This is on financial support for solar PV, 
and it proposes closing the renewables obligation to new solar PV projects of 5 megawatts and below from the 1st of April 2016, a year earlier than expected. Solar generators within the Renewables Obligation Scheme can issue Renewables Obligation Certificates, commonly called ROCs. These ROCs can be sold to the energy companies who have an obligation to source part of their supply from renewables. The ROCs are evidence that they have done so. If solar generators can no longer issue and sell ROCs, then they lose a significant source of income. They could end up on the ROCs. At this stage, it's a consultation. There's an opportunity to get your voice heard. Anyone can respond. You can find the consultation documents on the DEC website. That's decc.gov.uk. The reference is 15D-363. And you can send your comments to solarpv.consultation at decc.gsi gov.uk before the 2nd of September. You'll also find a consultation on the feed-in tariff as well. The Secretary of State was interviewed on the BBC's Today programme this week and asked why they were cutting the subsidy. She reiterated that because the rocks were purchased by the energy companies, they were ultimately paid for by the consumers. My priorities are clear, she said. We need to keep bills as low as possible for hard-working families and businesses while reducing our emissions in the most cost-effective way. Asked why she was taking action which would reduce bills by about £3 when subsidies to nuclear were so much greater, she said that nuclear was a different question. Of course, we all like low bills, but they're coming at the expense of hidden costs, the costs of climate change. Actually, they're not hidden costs, they're just largely ignored. It's a short-term policy. And the worrying thing is that it could be another short-term policy with no way back. And why is the Minister playing to the electorate and promising lower bills? This is the first year of a five-year term. Any government in this position can do more or less exactly what it likes, because it doesn't have to worry about re-election for years. If you're in business, in a business with a turnover of £40 million or more, you probably need to comply with ESOS, the Energy Savings Opportunity Scheme. You should already have registered. This doesn't apply to the public sector, but it could apply to large charities, not-for-profit organisations or universities. Check to be sure. The deadline for the first compliance period is the 5th of December 2015, by which time qualifying businesses will have to achieve compliance with the regulations and notify the Environment Agency. This means you must carry out an energy audit which must cover all UK operations over a 12-month period, including the 31st of December 2014. It must be coordinated and approved by a lead energy assessor. The lead assessor must be qualified and must appear on the register of lead assessors. If your organisation has implemented ISO 50001, the Energy Management Standard, you don't need a separate ESOS assessment. But you do need to make the Environment Agency aware that you comply by virtue of having the standard. Go to the Carbon Trust website, carbontrust.com, and download their guide.
There's a new report out from The Energist, formerly Water, Energy and Environment magazine. It's called Financing Energy Efficiency and it's based on a survey of energy managers and finance professionals. Talking to financiers, they found there was no shortage of funding for energy-saving projects, but talking to energy managers, they found that many projects were not implemented because they couldn't get the funds. There seem to be two factors at work here. One is that the board of directors in many organisations doesn't see energy saving as a priority. The implicit assumption in this is that energy costs are unlikely to rise. I hope they're right. The other factor is that energy managers may not be skilled at presenting a business case. Scope for training here? Or perhaps the management accounting team in an organisation should see it as part of its role to help line managers promote their proposals. There's an interesting quote in the report from Mervyn Bowden, former head of energy at Marks & Spencer, who says that low-cost and no-cost measures can save 10 to 20% of energy use. You can download the full report from the Energist website. That's T-H-E-E-N-E-R-G-Y-S-T dot com. How do you get the sustainability message across? Do you find it difficult in your organisation? Sustainable brands have come up with 46 tips for better sustainability storytelling. If you can't explain it simply, they say, you don't understand it well enough. Which is a very good starting point. I'm not going to go through all 46, but here are my favourites. Number three, don't talk sustainability or environment. Think about people's passion points. Don't talk about energy efficiency, talk money savings. Don't talk about embodied carbon, talk about healthy and productive buildings. Don't talk about reuse and recycling. Talk about innovative new products. Number five, back up your claims with quantifiable data and make sure it's robust. Data is king. Number 11, keep it simple. Carbon economics, value chain metrics, circularity, the planetization of finance, none of this stuff is straightforward. Simplify everything. Closely followed by number 12, avoid jargon like the plague. Any mates you've garnered via simplification will quickly be lost if you start dithering with bombast, bluster and balderdash. Number 32. Get your board members involved. The senior management team are the ultimate advocates to have on your side. Get them involved in your content creation, keep them up to date on what you're doing and make sure they feel connected to your storytelling. Possibly easier said than done. Number 41. Avoid doom and gloom. Central to this is to swerve the negatives. Your audience won't appreciate a reminder of the huge challenges the world faces or the compromises they might have to make to live a more sustainable lifestyle. Focus on the positives, the great, big, exciting things that are happening that will put a smile on their faces. You can read the full article by Tom Idle at sustainablebrands.com. People not smiling at the moment are the 200 or so members of the Green Building Council who issued a press release this week urging the Chancellor to reconsider scrapping the zero-carbon homes policy. In the Chancellor's productivity plan, Fixing the Foundations, 
George Osborne unexpectedly axed the policy designed to ensure all new homes built from 2016 meet zero carbon standards, together with a sister policy that applied to all new non-residential buildings, such as offices, schools and hospitals, from 2019. This comes after our report last week of the carbon-positive home built in Wales, a home built to the highest standards of energy conservation, but which costs no more to build than a conventional house. The measure on axing the zero-carbon standard is tucked away in the Chancellor's document, and the only justification quoted is to reduce net regulation on house builders. The whole idea seems perverse, considering that the industry has been preparing for this with government investment for the last 10 years. Indeed, there is a £1 billion, 1,300 home, zero carbon development being built in Cambridge, and residents are about to move into a 400 zero carbon home development in Bicester in Oxfordshire. Amber Rudd at Deck is saying she wants to control energy costs for hard-working families, but this measure is removing zero-carbon homes, which will cost less to run. Is this a case of the left hand not knowing? It's not joined-up thinking. But things could be worse. You could live in Australia. According to Australia's Liberal Times, Prime Minister Tony Abbott warns that solar power will destroy the sun. Here is what the article says. Prime Minister Tony Abbott has renewed his commitment to axe the renewable energy target, warning that continued and excessive use of solar power will gradually deplete and eventually destroy the sun. The RET has succeeded in reducing Australia's dependence on fossil fuels, decreasing the average household's energy bill, creating jobs and encouraging international investment. But Mr Abbott has now warned that the continued drain on the sun's energy may cause it to burn out as soon as 2050. There's no such thing as an infinite resource, and it's unfortunate the previous Labour government didn't think of that, stated Mr Abbott, weeping gently into a handkerchief. The panel I had appointed to deliberate on the fate of the RET, composed of highly qualified climate change sceptics, pro-nuclear advocates and fossil fuel lobbyists, were all set to announce that we should stick with it. Now, however... It seems as though it's simply too dangerous. The time has come for the hippies of the radical left to put away their reckless ideologies and listen to the science. Continued use of solar power will make the sun implode. Independent modelling found that the removal of the RET would mean a loss of $10.6 billion in investment and an annual carbon emission increase of 15 million tonnes, with no drop in energy prices to consumers. Despite this, Mr Abbott is committed to removing it completely. Future generations will look back at this turning point and be thankful that we made the right decision, Mr Abbott stated. And we won't just be saving the sun. Think of all the air we've lost to wind turbines. It's time for this reckless use of our natural resources to stop. The government did announce, however, that they're considering the continued controlled use of hydroelectric power to combat rising sea levels. We do understand that the air is going to be more polluted with all the extra coal we'll have to burn, but there's just no avoiding that. Clean air does not simply grow on trees. You need to know that Liberal News is the equivalent of the UK's Private Eye magazine. However this bit is true, the Abbott government's efforts are expected to receive a boost by the recent move in which Treasurer Joe Hockey and Finance Minister Matthias Cormann told 
the $10 billion Clean Energy Finance Corporation to stop investing in wind power projects. Only in Australia. Maybe soon in the UK. You think you could manage UK energy policy? DEC have published an update of their 2050 calculator tool. I haven't had a chance to play with it, but the last one was brilliant, so I'm looking forward to seeing what this one is like. It's a simulation which lets you manage demand and supply from all sorts of different sources of energy. Go to dec.gov.uk, that's dec.gov.uk, and search for 2050 Calculator Tool. That's the end of another episode. Sorry it was a bit late, but I had to get Amber Rudd's speech in. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your emails. As ever, I'm Anthony Day, and you can email me with comments, praise, criticism and ideas at mail at anthony-day.com. This has been the Sustainable Futures Show. Till next time. Thank you.